it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Last week, the rapper Young Dolph was shot and killed in his hometown of Memphis, right in front of a black-owned cookie store that Young Dolph had recently promoted on social media. It is truly a terrible story, and my condolences to his family, the people of Memphis, and the fans who loved him. His death, unfortunately, continued a trend of gifted artists dying senselessly and violently. Nipsey, Pop Smoke, and now Young Dolph. For this episode, the word of the week is omnipresent. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Not surprisingly, right after Young Dolph was shot and killed, those with bad intentions, the always present bad faith actors, came roaring to the front of the line just to bellow about black on black crime. Even though many of these bellowers have never, A, lived in a black neighborhood or patronized one, and B, just want a justification for dehumanizing black people. See, the entire premise of black on black crime is built on the idea that black people are inherently more violent than everyone else. And the violence that plagues our community is strictly a consequence of the overall morality that we lack as a people. In other words, Killing each other, it's just what black people do. While many black folks who expressed their frustration about Young Dolph's murder didn't specifically use the phrase black on black crime, they kind of sort of pinned his murder on black on black crime. Why can't we do better? A lot of people said. When are we going to hold ourselves accountable? Why are we killing ourselves when that's just what they want? And y'all know who they is. And my personal favorite, we need to focus on fixing our communities. While the disingenuous black on black crime folks and the frustrated black people certainly don't have the same agenda, they're having the same conversation. They just don't understand what the conversation should actually be about. Now, as of now, we don't know who killed young Dolph. We don't know why he was murdered. But if we're going to have a conversation about crime in black neighborhoods, since that's where young Dolph was shot, then let's have a real fucking conversation about what's going on in black communities. And more importantly, let's have a conversation about why it's going on in the black community. Memphis, young Dolph's hometown, ranks ninth as the least educated city in America. Black kids there are twice as likely to not have a high school diploma. Black people are four times more likely to live in poverty than white people, which includes a child poverty rate that was highest in the nation. The median income for a black family in Memphis is $30,000. Now, I'm not telling you this to embarrass Memphis or to talk shit about the city. I'm from Detroit and our city isn't much different. Nearly half of Detroit adults are functionally illiterate. As recently as 2017, only 7% of eighth graders in Detroit public schools performed at or above a proficient reading level. Detroit, which is 80% black, has an unemployment rate of 25%. For context, The national unemployment rate is 4.6%. Over the last decade, white Detroiters saw their income rise 60%. Black Detroiters, 8%. So my city is fucked up too. It's a similar story in Baltimore, Cleveland, Chicago, pretty much the majority of cities that have large concentrations of black people. Know what else all these cities have in common? Decades of racist housing and economic policy, white flight, built in educational inequity, police brutality, high rates of incarceration, and so on and so forth. 
The concept of personal responsibility and accountability is not new in the black community. We've heard that same speech from our pastors, teachers, grandparents, parents, aunties, uncles and community members. We've even heard this same respectability messaging from Bill Cosby. In the old days, you couldn't hook a school because behind every drawn shade was an eye. And before your mother got off the bus into the house, she knew exactly where you had gone, who had gone into the house. Parents don't know that today. I'm talking about these people who cry when their son is standing there in an orange suit. Where were you when he was two? Where were you when he was 12? Where were you when he was 18? And how come you don't know he had a pistol? These are not, these, these are not political criminals. These are people going around stealing Coca-Cola. People getting shot in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake. And then we all run out and we're outraged. Oh, the cop shouldn't have shot him. Now, Bill Cosby gave that speech, which was dubbed the pound cake speech in 2004 at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund Awards. He was on the stage with Reverend Jesse Jackson and the people clapping were black. Hence why I laugh my ass off when white folks want to lecture black people about personal responsibility and pulling ourselves up from the bootstraps as if this is something that doesn't have an audience in our community. Nobody believes in the essence of the pound cake speech more than black people. But in doing so, we mistakenly identify the wrong problems and we let the real culprits off the hook. You can have your pants pulled up. Not listen to a lick of rap music, attend church every Sunday, go to school every day, say yes, sir, no, ma'am, never rob or steal. And that doesn't change the racial wealth gap. That doesn't change the fact that state governments invest less money in the quality of life for black children from health care to education. That won't stop the police from terrorizing black neighborhoods. That doesn't stop banks from predatory lending when it comes to black people. That doesn't stop appraisers from purposely undervaluing homes in thriving black communities. That doesn't stop banks from giving favorable loans to white people in black neighborhoods so that they can eventually gentrify black enclaves. It doesn't stop the lack of Internet access in the black community. It doesn't address the fact that the federal minimum wage hasn't risen since 2009. My ability to pull bootstraps isn't going to provide child care for working black mothers or the bare necessities for people who have to work two and three jobs just to get them. See, we've been talking forever about the need to, quote unquote, fix ourselves and to do better. But none of that addresses the triggers that lead to the violence. When you deprive a community of educational and economic resources, make it a haven for inequity. What you get in return is constant violence. So it's no surprise that the two most dangerous cities in America, according to the latest statistics, are Detroit and Memphis, respectively. When you have entire communities that are devoid of hope and feel like they have nothing to lose, violence will be omnipresent. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today had the most extraordinary acting performance of 2021. That is no cap, as the kids say. It was the best acting performance of the year. It also was her first major acting role ever. What she's known for is her soul-stirring singing voice. She sang a powerful song that eventually became a protest anthem for Black liberation and empowerment. She is Grammy-nominated, a true artist, and a certified example of excellence. Up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Andra Day.
it's funny. So the day that your Golden Globe nomination came out uh, for United States versus Billy Holiday, I was doing the pod with Lee Daniels. <laughs> I was doing it with Lee when it came out. Oh, and so wow. it was maybe okay, okay. an All hour right. fresh. And I was like, Lee, <laughs> how do you feel? Like, you know, and so he he just gave such a, a great answer. And of course, told me the backstory about how this was a part. Neither one of y'all wanted. No, he didn't want you to do it. And you didn't want to do it. Right? Exactly. Like he said, we had to be we were literally being pushed toward each other by other forces because we were both like, no, that's when people are like, oh. Did he want you to do it? I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, and I agreed with him. I was like, I think that's a good idea. You find somebody good for this role. You know what I mean? I'll be praying for y'all. And I, I say this, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass by telling you this and because you're doing the pod, but um, a <laughs> lot of great movies uh, came out. You, to me, by far, had the most powerful for a performance that I saw. Oh, wow. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. I felt so bad saying that because Daniel Kaluuya was excellent. It was incredible, of course. He was incredible. But the degree of difficulty of what you were facing <laughs> was a little different. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I grew up watching Lady Sings the Blues with my mom. So we all know Diana Ross also was Oscar nominated. Yeah. So that degree of difficulty for you was no joke. Part of many reasons why you immediately were skeptical about doing this role. Oh, yeah. I mean, off rip, it was just that I'm not an actor. You know what I mean? That was the thing that I was like, you know, this whole thing. People were like, oh, why were you hesitant? And I was like, bro, it's like somebody asking you to be like, we think you should do a violin concert. Like, but I'm not a violinist. You know what I mean? So it's just like stepping into this place that you're like felt very uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like the entire thing was an act of faith, truthfully, for me, top to bottom, you know. So it was it, I think that was the first thing was that like, I don't think I can do this. Why do you guys think I can do this? You know what I mean? But. And then on top of that, even if I had had some experience and whatever, you know, it's like Billie Holiday, you know, I'm looking at pictures. There's one, two, three of them. You know what I mean? Like, I love her so much. You know what I mean? So she's like those singers, Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, Ella, Eartha Kitt, you know, Sarah Vaughn, like Carmen McRae. Like, these are singers who raised me. And, but her in particular, I love so much. So it's like I also was aware at the time of how her story has been. I, I can't gloss over is really the most polite way to say just lied about and flipped. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, she was sort of left to just be looked at as a tragic drug addicted jazz singer. And it's like, I really wanted to honor her legacy. I wanted the truth of her story to be told and wanted to make sure that's what was happening. So I just, I really wanted to honor God. I wanted to honor her and I wanted to honor the people I worked with. And so that was, it was terrifying. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like the only way to put it really. Yeah. Andrew, you've talked a lot about, you know, what you did to uh, prepare for this role. It was quite a bit. I want to know how you decompressed from the role because it was heavy. It was a lot. And you you tapped into a lot of darkness. So how have you been able to decompress since United States versus Billie Holiday came out? Uh, well, I can now officially say, because I was able to say this sporadically throughout, but now I'm like, great. I'm like, how many months, two months and three months? A clean of cigarettes. So that's good. <laughs> I just quit maybe like two, uh, I think I quit in August officially. I quit in August. I'm a blast him on here. Whenever Evan Ross birthday was, that's the last time I had a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so no, no. So I, um, and that, that was a big part of it. Prayer is a huge, huge thing for me. You know what I'm saying? And I think during the process of decompressing, I started to get a little nervous, like, it had been a while, right? We stopped filming in the end of 2019, but we still filmed and did pickup shots and some ADR work, some voiceover stuff in um, 2020. You know, I did start to get a little bit like, uh oh, like how much of this, like how long and how much of this is going to stick around. But as of like the last few months, for me, prayer is a huge thing. And just remembering like that, okay, this is something that I believe for me, according to my faith, that God brought me to and to not forget that like, the cliches saying of like, bring you to it, bring you through it. You know what I'm saying? And so to rely on that, cause I think I started to get like paranoid about certain behaviors or the way I respond to certain things. Cause she reacts differently than I did before the character. She engages differently, all this stuff. So I started to get a little nervous, but prayer was a big thing for me. You know what I mean? And being patient, you know what I mean? With, with myself, knowing that it was a process to get into it. I didn't just all of a sudden become her. So it will be a process to shed her. You know what I'm saying? One that I'm mostly out of now, I think, but, you know, there's still little lingering things. So, you know, it's just a lot of prayer for me. I have a great, you know, um, 
family support system. Lee is so supportive. My castmates, who I still talk to and love, are great friends. Really supportive and everything. Just <laughs> trying to be like, you good. <laughs> like, shit is normal. You good. Um, so, and then just prayer, being patient with myself is, is a big, big part of it. Uh, speaking of your castmates, um, my friends with Tone Bell. And so my immediately, God! I should FaceTime him right now. <laughs> you should. Uh, immediately after I saw the movie, I DM'd him and I was like, dog, I really hate your fucking guts right now. <laughs> like, like, I can't tell you. I was like, I'm so proud of you, but I hate you at the same time. <laughs> I was like, I still don't know why I'm friends with you. It's questionable. No? <laughs> it's so true. He is a special talent, too, because Tone, like, he, I think people don't, you know, you probably feel he prepared for the role. He probably got the script and he read it and he did it. Nope. Tone was hired the day before, flew in, and then started working the next day. That was it. Like, it was that quick. So we met. The day that it was, it worked out as he says, because the day we met was the day he meets Billy, you know what I'm saying? And so he was kind of grafted into this family that was already happening. But I mean, just talk about like an incredible talent, a person of great talent, of great integrity, you know, like it was so funny because we had an incident on set, the fight scene where he's beating me up, you know what I mean? And one of the scenes, and it's what we caught on camera, one of the scenes, his foot slipped because we, we, you know, choreographed the fight. And so on one of the scenes, the foot, his foot actually, it's supposed to catch the rug or the carpet and it actually slipped and did kick me in the mouth. Oh no. That fuck that you hear on that scene, that was real. (laughs) (laughs) But like he, I literally, by the time I got to my house, back to the place we were staying that night, he had, he had already sent over flowers and like just a great human being. You know what I'm saying? So I, yeah, Tom Bell is, that's family, kinfolk, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, he, he played a, a remarkable role as uh, Billie Holiday's her husband. And there was, as much as I thought I knew about her, there was a lot that I learned from this movie. Um, how much did you learn? I, I know your name is partly based off Billie Holiday, but how much did you, you actually learn in this, in this process? Yeah, you know, so um, there, yes, there was a lot that I knew. It's a part of why I love her, you know, but like, for instance, the, the, the depth of the Jimmy Fletcher piece, you know, cause I know after the movie came came out, you know, people were like, well, they didn't really have a love affair, blah, blah, blah. The truth of the matter is they actually really did become close friends. You know what I mean? And he really did have a love for her. Like that's how he describes her in his own words. She was the loving kind, you know what I mean? So we just sort of took, or Lee took and their team took a creative license here to say they could have possibly had an in, in a relationship. And it was very easy for her to find herself in relationships and fall in love and as loving as Billie Holiday could find herself, you know what I'm saying? So that piece was actually revelatory for me. I didn't know how deeply they used someone like Jimmy Fletcher to, I knew they infiltrated her life. I knew they went after her, but I didn't know the way they infiltrated her heart and betrayed her like that. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, but there was a lot that I, that I did know about her, which is I think why the story was so close because, you know, to me, she truly is. And that's the thing I've reiterated this a lot, but it's because I really do want people to know, like she reinvigorated Thurgood Marshall and the reinvigorated civil rights movement. Right. You know, cause we obviously have the Ida B Wells, you know, predating that of course, but a lot of people don't know the movement had really died out at that point. You know what I'm saying? There was not much um, a momentum and not much vigor. And it was obviously the death of Emmett Till, but it was also Billie Holiday relentlessly singing this song and the government relentlessly going after her that motivated um, the neo-civil rights movement, which is what they would have been looked at at the time as. So, you know, she I truly do look at her as the godmother of the modern civil rights movement as we know it. It was just hugely responsible for motivating a lot of our leaders during that time, you know. Yeah, so it's, I, I think there was a lot I did know, but there was still what I learned about her fight and her spirit. I think it was more internal what I learned about her. And then the Jimmy Fletcher piece was something new for me as well. Yeah, I knew a little bit about that. Um, I didn't know the depth of it either. I also, I knew she died in a hospital. I did not know she died chained to the bed. Yeah, handcuffed to the bed. Yeah. The other part too is the planting of drugs on her. You know what I mean? And that's like- Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's, I mean, which is why still to this day, often people question like, you know what I mean? She was sick. Her body had been ravaged, you know what I'm saying? By drugs. But there's not a certainty that she actually died of that cause or natural causes when she was in the hotel. They, there's when she was in the hospital room. You know, there's still speculation that 
Harry Ensley know that his agents actually did kill her. And it's it sucks because for our stories, oftentimes when you're dealing with the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, you're dealing with these leaders that have a a their intention is to undermine and to dismantle black leadership and progress. And, you know, we don't have access to the resources to, to investigate our stories, you know, as, as deeply as, as they do. So it's always that thing in the air. I am convinced that they killed her, but you know, that's definitely me. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I don't think it's just you. I mean, I, I think anybody who does a little bit of research, that wouldn't be the case. Right. And what's so bothersome, I mean, among, I should say the many things that are bothersome about this, there's still fucking buildings named after Harry Anslinger. A hundred percent. You know, the, their building's named after him. And this is the the agent who essentially, in many ways, you know, killed her, planted drugs on her, did all of those things. And we have buildings yeah. named after him. Just like we have buildings named after J. Edgar Hoover with intention. Absolutely. With the intention, you know what I'm saying? To, he did go after her with the intention to kill her. You know, he was, they always describe him, Johan Hari describes him best as a racist by racist standards, even at that time. You know what I'm saying? And so, but I think we have buildings named after him. We have buildings named after Hoover, but just the, the general premise of the FBI, you know, like people always ask me, you know, well, how do you think we can change, you know, the police departments or the FBI or the, I'm like, they're actually doing what they were designed to do. You know what I mean? So that's like the, the whole idea of sort of, turning that around. I'm like, it's a dismantling and it's a rebuilding. You know what I mean? It's actually not even a rebuilding. It's a new building of a system that actually works for a diverse nation, right? A nation of where people are, all people are represented. So it's, it's, it's true that you bring that up to the, you know, the Hoover thing, because even that to me is like a slap in the face, right? You know, you don't see, you know, who talks about this best Brian Stevenson, who just is like, obviously a modern hero living among us. But he describes how much better Germany did this with the Nazis and with Nazi propaganda and Nazi culture. You know what I'm saying? You know, you can teach about it. The kids should know about it. Young people should know about it. Adults should know about it. But you don't build monuments to Hitler or to the leaders of the Nazi party. And and here in America, our marketing is just better. You know what I mean? So we have entire buildings and systems that are built to people that really had an intention to oppress entire groups of people in the nation, black people, brown people, you know, LGBTQ, like their intention was that. So I I think until we start to understand that we need to deal with those things, we're going to continue subconsciously feeding that agenda. Truthfully. Yeah. And to your point in Germany, swastikas are illegal over here. Confederate flags. Totally welcome. Totally right. (laughs) Right. It's like you can buy them anywhere. It's like, all right, people. You know what I mean? I'm in the valley. I'm in the Simi Valley is not that far away. So no offense to anybody who's acting right out there. But if you're not, I'll be seeing them on big trucks driving by still Confederate flag in California, in Los Angeles. You know what I'm saying? So it is true. This this idea that it's like, oh, that's, you know, of course, I believe in freedom of speech. But I'm like, but we, you know, we, we will silence other voices. We'll silence you know, black and brown and marginalized communities voices, you know what I mean? But we won't silence voices that promote. It's not about silencing them, but about really actually making the public educated, you know, on what the intention of these voices and these things are for. So, yeah, I'm I'm always amazed at when Brian Stevenson speaks, you know what I mean? And just how much I learn. And I'm like, it's very true. It's marketing. And America markets things very well. And for those who are listening, Brian Stevenson, if you saw the movie Just Mercy, that is who that movie was based off of yes. because of his, you know, longstanding battle against criminal injustice. And so uh, he's a tremendous, tremendous figure. Yeah. Civil rights attorney still fighting to get people who are unjustly incarcerated out of prison. So, yeah, he's a hero for sure. Of all the uh, things that you did to prepare the role. One of the more amazing things is that you lost about 40 pounds right, to do this. <laughs> I gained 20 of it back. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, what's the gaining back process? Like? I, I did lose 40 pounds for it. Actually, what they were trying to have me do was lose the weight. And then they're like, then she needs to gain 50 pounds. And at the point at, when I was committed, once I got over, I prayed about I was committed. I was like, I'm down for whatever. You know what I'm saying? Finally, a doctor was like, you can't gain 50 back. You'll get fatty liver and die. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, but we did lose the weight. I, I started early on to do it healthier with this company. I got with this organization called Altis and this um, trainer, Daniel Ferguson, actually is his name. And uh, and so they, I was losing it very slowly and trying to be healthy. But I knew toward the end, it was like, 
I can't keep up the trajectory of healthy because my body will look too good. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it's the 1940s. So my body wouldn't look like that, but it's 1940s, Billie Holiday, drug ravaged body, alcohol, cigarettes, hard living, you know what I mean? Very little sleep, stress, you know, all that stuff. So I was like, stuff has to sag, stuff has to, you know what I mean? Like, so um, I couldn't walk in and like Billie Holiday has an eight pack. Like that's weird. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> like just, you know, hard body, brawlic Billy. That's not cute. So um, I did. Yeah. People were like, what was your diet secret? I was like, eat air and smoke a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> so you were on the, the champagne and cigarettes diet. A hundred percent. I was like, please keep asking me, what's your secret? I was like, don't follow it. You will not survive. <laughs> but like, this is not a recommendation. And okay. No, it's not. And, and it was really designed. Also, the thing about it is because I was like hungry pretty often. And then I'd randomly fill my body with fat while I was on set and then let it go for a while but it would slow me down. I had very little energy, you know what I mean? So it would slow me down. The cigarettes would slow me down, which was good because I'm fast. Billy's like molasses slow. So it was, it all kind of worked together in tandem in a beautiful way, intentionally and unintentionally to create, you know, this magnificent woman, you know. You also um, talked with addicts to prepare for the role, correct? I did. Yeah, I did. Woo wee. Yeah. Wow, you brought that back. Woo wee. <laughs> Uh, that was a trip. That was actually really a trip and a really emotional experience. I still have like a 30 minute long video of just our conversation that I look at on my phone. Um, yeah, I talked with recovering addicts. I talked with a guy who owned a school and then he brought a young kid. I particularly, I in particular, but I talked to people who were addicted to like cocaine, to addicted to heroin and meth and just all, all kind of things, alcohol. But there was one in particular that I really stuck out to me. It was a man who owned a rehab facility <laughs> and uh, and he brought a young kid who was only not even fully a year into his sobriety. So I was really nervous because I was like, is he going to be OK? You know, he said he's a really big fan of yours. So this is a, a good thing for him and is a good step in his recovery. But they're teaching me everything. And he was so detailed because he brought. So here's what needles look like now, but this is not what she would have had. So he brought like a vintage glass looking like it was a, it would be a glass needle and big gauge as well, too. You know what I mean? So like that's where those massive track marks in her arm come from. But as he's teaching me to like tie off, you know what I'm saying? And teaching me when the high hits all this stuff, this kid, like his pupils start to dilate. I could see him zone in. I could see sweat start to build on his brow. And even when I would like speak, it was like. He wouldn't really register. He was so zoned in on watching the process of me learning how to do it. And it like broke my heart, but also motivated me at the same time, you know, and he was, I'm good. I'm good. You know, but he, everything I needed to know about the motive and the moment before he taught me in that moment without even speaking a word, you know what I mean? It was just like, it was so visceral and so real. So, um, I'm very appreciative of, of him, you know what I mean? And that school, you know, for that for that time in that moment. Yeah, it's a lot of nuance to it. I mean, my, my parents are recovering addicts. My father was addicted to um, heroin. And so wow. there is a difference between, say, being high on cocaine versus a heroin knot. And Absolutely. Mm -hmm. those are the, you know, one thing I certainly noticed. Uh, I never saw my father high, but my mother certainly told me some stories. And seeing you go through that, like everything you did is how she would visualize it to me. And so I was like, this is, really on the money right here wow yeah. wow oh my gosh that's and that and i got it like you know first of all god is great but i i gotta give a lot of credit to to those people and to lee as you know what i'm saying as a recovering addict which he was like nervous and hesitant to talk about it when we were on the promo trail but i was so proud of him every time he did talk about it because i'm like but look at you like you're not and you're thriving and you're you know and people know that there's life after that, you know what I'm saying? Like through him. So it was, it, it's, I can't take credit for that. You know, it was a combination of just the sacrifice and willingness and openness of people who have had direct encounters with it. You know what I'm saying? And that was, it was really powerful. Well, there is a lot more I want to ask you about, particularly your association with Stevie Wonder. And, <laughs> you know, I had a particular question about Rise Up to that I want to I want to get to as well. But we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back more with the wonderful, the talented, the beautiful, uh, the amazing Andrew Day. Open the podcast talking about the violence in the black community. As you noticed, I'm passionate about the subject. 
And that's because I lived it. I got a story to tell about the first person I knew who got shot. I went to Mumford High School in Detroit. You guys have heard me say this many times on the podcast, but just in case you hadn't, I went to Mumford. And if that name sounds a little bit familiar, and I'm probably dating myself with this movie reference, uh, in the Beverly Hills Cop trilogy, Detective Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy, wore a t-shirt that said Mumford High Physical Education Department. Well, that's a real school, my high school. It wasn't random that Eddie wore that T-shirt because the executive producer of Beverly Hills Cop, Jerry Bruckheimer, went to my high school. Okay, enough of that tangent. My first year in Mumford, the school was still reeling because of the murder of a kid named Jameson Lett, a star baseball player who was shot and killed during a street brawl that occurred a couple blocks away from my school. That happened two years before I got to Mumford. And by the time I got there, Mumford had metal detectors and chains on the door like Eastside High, known as the school that Joe Clark was the principal of in Lean On Me. We had fights, a lot of them. There were certainly students who we heard carry guns. But other than that, most of the violence I experienced occurred outside of school property until my senior year. Now, there was a kid in my AP English class named Dewey, who a lot of us girls really liked because candidly, he was cute and he fit the description of what girls were into in the early 90s. He was a roughneck. Shout out to MC Light. There were whispers he ran with a gang. But at the time, I remember thinking, I mean, how thuggish can you really be if you up in AP English? Despite his reputation, though, Dewey was a really nice guy. He was funny, charming. I remember once as part of class, we took a class trip to Stratford, Ontario for the Shakespeare Festival. In case some of you don't know this, Detroit is very close to Canada. You can literally get to Canada in about 10 minutes. I can't tell you shit about any Shakespeare play that we saw on that trip, but I vividly remember the bus ride because a lot of us, including Dewey, sat in the back of the bus and just clowned for hours. Now, Dewey was one of those guys who rarely smiled, but on that trip, he was smiling and laughing a lot. Now, I don't remember exactly how much time passed, but let's just say shortly after that class trip, I was at school one day when chaos broke out. I think I may have been on the second floor of our school and suddenly I saw people running and there was just a lot of screaming and I started running too because like Cedric the Entertainer said, we run. Now when the commotion finally died down, words circulated fast about what happened. Dewey, the alleged gangster with the incredible smile, was shot in the chest almost as soon as he stepped outside the front door of the school. Now, I don't know if anyone was ever caught, but Dewey recovered. I'm not sure if he ever came back to English class. But what I think about most is what happened in the days and the weeks and the rest of the school year that followed Dewey being shot. We went in and out of that front door as if nothing happened. Our routine never changed. There were no community meetings, at least none that I could recall or was aware of. School administrators didn't offer us counseling. No assemblies were held. We didn't practice any active shooter drills. We weren't forced to buy clear backpacks. Beyond hoping Dewey would be back to school soon, we just kept going. Not because we didn't care, but because what happened to him was so normal and so expected. And now more from Andrew Day. Andrew, you were talking before we took a quick break about um, addiction. And this is something that you also know about that you disclosed in, in Style Magazine um, and talking about a, a few addictions that you were dealing with. These are not easy things to go public with. And I'm just wondering what made you kind of freely share your uh, addiction? I believe it was sex and porn, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What made you decide to share that? Well, A, I don't think I realized at the time that it was going to be like <laughs> the lead line in the article. Oh. I, was just talking. <laughs> I was just sharing and be, I'm very, I feel like when it comes to interviews, I'm very conversational and my mind forgets and I'm like, oh yeah, right. It's an interview. I forgot. But at the same time, I actually am very candid. I am very open about it. I think because people need to know that it, it is a thing, you know what I'm saying? And there is a difference because somebody had, you know, asked or made a comment one time that was like, 
were you addicted or was it just a high desire? And I'm like, yeah, there's a difference. <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, when you're willing to make detrimental decisions to your life and to other people's life and your relationships and everything for the sake of that, you're, you have a problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you know, when healthy relationships and healthy interactions are not enough, if things have to be depraved, if they have to feel like a violation of, you know what I'm saying, your body then that's something different. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of those things are birthed just like other addictions, like heroin, like drugs, they're birthed from trauma. You know what I'm saying? And so, and and unfortunately for a lot of women, you know, there is a lot of, you know, sexual or emotional intimate trauma, you know, in their lives. So also there's a little bit of accountability in that for me as well, that goes like, cool. I, I, I know that I don't want to live that way anymore. You know what I mean? And I feel like the more honest and open I am about it, it's a little bit of a, it's like a security. It's like a protection. You know what I'm saying? A little bit. And also for people to know that like, A, yeah, you might be dealing with an issue. You know what I mean? And B, if you are and you discover that you are, that of course there's a way out of it. You know what I'm saying? There's not, you got to turn off social media for a little bit. <laughs> They'll tell you a whole other thing about that. You know what I mean? So I think I shared because I don't know. I just think that like, for me as a person of faith, right? I'm not like a soapbox preacher. You know what I'm saying? It's like you live your life that way. And to me, that's the testimony. So I feel like the more I live and the more I share and am honest and trying to love people and love God, then that's how people will hopefully find their own freedom in that. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's what really made me share and to deal with the fact that like some of these things that we deal with as not just women, but as people in general, some of these sexual traumas or some of these like emotional traumas, you know, we got to know, like, this is, it's not something that we should just accept and be okay with. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I think, you know, that's one of the, one of the good things about, I guess, you know, maybe not specifically social media, but just, you know, you have more access to information and other people's stories to say, Hey, I don't actually have to be silent or quiet about this. You know what I mean? So I want to talk about it so I can talk about the effects that it's had on my life and how I can actually, you know, heal and and move on you know what I mean so I think that's like definitely why I do talk about it was that an experience that you were bringing to the role of of Billie Holiday having some understanding of of addiction given your own story 100% yeah definitely I mean I I think that it's you know uh the the uh the way we qualify it as well too sometimes and and the need you know what I mean uh absolutely I mean that was definitely a huge part of it you know I understand the when you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to. And then just the moment of tunnel vision when you decide that you're going to, even though the truth of the matter is you knew the whole time you were going to, you know what I mean? And you just like, I know the immense and intense shame and you know what I'm saying? And the lowness that you feel after and all of this stuff. And so, you know, uh, yeah, I definitely was bringing that to the role, but then the need to heal that again, (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> like gratify it again by, okay, I need to feel good again. So let me, you know what I'm saying? Pop off and whatever. So, you know, yeah, definitely. I did read that you, um, you committed to abstinence. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. 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 Seven, yeah, seven years now. <laughs> seven years now. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot less like drama in my life. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, um, so it's not, I mean, and I think people are just like, Oh my God, you don't even, I'm like, I mean, it's not like I haven't like, you know, it's difficult. I went from being like very, very, you know, sexual unhealthily sexual probably to like, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, there's still, I think it's so funny because people go nothing. And I'm like, I mean, you know, I'm a dude. So sometimes, you know, we like mess around. But yes, I have not had intercourse in seven years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people, I, people want to be so specific. Oh, nose asses. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I read it somewhere, man. Like they, they were just like, <laughs> no, 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 not you. Not oh, you. Okay. Not you. People be wanting to break down the da da da. And I'm like, okay, extras. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. Um, well, I mean, what have you learned about yourself on this journey? First of all, I love that you said it like that because I did not, I the truth of the matter is I didn't know myself until I let it go. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, first of all, for me, you know what I'm saying? I realize other people believe different things or not at all. You know what I mean? But for me and my spiritual relationship, like just getting to know God on that level without that being there was like 
not just like mind and heart and spirit altering, but actually life altering the trajectory of my life. Like that's actually when my career started taking off, like when things started moving and like, I also just knew myself more. It's so crazy. Like outside of just preparing my body to be physically intimate with somebody and not, not to each his own. You know what I mean? I'm not saying this because everybody, you know, has to go. But if you are thinking about it, if people are thinking about, okay, for me, it was like, I finally got to know myself. It was like literally falling in love with God and falling in love with myself again. You know what I mean? I was like, wow, I'm genuinely interested in these things. I genuinely like these things. I genuinely dislike certain things. All right. It was just, it was really, really learning about who I was, what I really wanted, what I was really interested in, what I was capable of, not just mentally and physically, but also spiritually. You know what I'm saying? Like my drive was better. My focus was better. So, and then for me, everything is about intention and purpose. You know what I mean? So it was realizing, oh, I learned through that process, like something I was learning about identity scriptures for me. So to each his own, but, and the two for me have been Isaiah 54, right? Being, I wake you morning by morning to hear as the learn. You're an encourager of men. You know what I mean? You're an encourager of people to hear as the learn, to speak with the tongue of the learned and to encourage men with that tongue. That's my identity. That's what I'm supposed to be. And then in this season, hearing clearly light that casts out darkness, light can only go where it's invited, but once it goes, it illuminates a place, you know what I'm saying? And so like, okay, cool. Like I learned that, I guess, about myself through that process. So there was a lot more clarity for me, I think, about who I really am, you know? Is this something that you want to just do until you get married or are you just going to take it as it comes? Yeah. Okay. If I end up um, getting married, then yeah, I, I do want to wait until I'm married. Um, you know what I mean? And if I, I know this sounds insane to probably most people, if I don't end up married, then I don't, I don't have like, you know, I, you know, I get tempted here and there. It's, you know, sometimes you, whatever, but I don't have a need for it like that. You know what I'm saying anymore? It's not, I know in people's minds, they go, you'll die if you don't. I'm like, you won't actually die, but <laughs> I've literally said what? people like, oh, no, you could actually die if you don't. I'm like, no, I don't think the science backs that up, actually. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think I've ever seen somebody's cause of death being not having sex. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that. So. Right? Exactly. I was like, I've literally had people say that to me. And I'm like, mm, I'm going to go ahead and take that one with probably no salt. I'm going to just leave it right there. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I don't. It's not really like, a, um, you know, if I end up married, cool and do it again. Cool. Great. But, yeah, it is something that, you know, I'm I'm, I'm scrape too. <laughs> Well, I think that that shows uh, a remarkable amount of strength. And of course, candor, as you mentioned, um, candor is something that just comes naturally to you. Now, as you know, the name of this. Yes. Yeah. The name of this podcast is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And the question I like to ask every guest is, when did you become unbothered? Mm, when did I become unbothered? I actually I will probably say the day I really developed a relationship with God, with Christ for me. I know other people. So really actually developed that spiritual relationship because then all that mattered to me was that I was aligned and I was walking in purpose and that I was being a servant. You know what I mean? And so, you know, and, and the truth of the matter is like, I'm still not completely unbothered. You know what I'm saying? Like the truth is sometimes I'll be bothered sometimes, you know, but I think I have a focus about the why, you know what I mean? And that is, that's really what helps to keep me grounded and to keep me unbothered like that. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that's, that's probably when, when is yours? I wonder, I'm curious. I know I'm not supposed to be asking you questions, but. <laughs> oh no, you, you, you can ask me questions. That's totally fine. Uh, it's supposed to be a conversation. There you go. Okay. <laughs> you know, for, uh, for me, uh, I think, when I really reached that space is probably maybe about three or four years ago. You know, I left out of very successful job at ESPN. And yes, I remember <laughs> we was all there. We was all there rooting for you and with you. <laughs> yes. Which I, I, I certainly appreciate. And so, um, yeah, everything was going, you know, pretty well. And then after that happened, it just, you, you realize you go through these events and you realize things are fleeting. Yeah, absolutely. So once I got to that point, um, the few fucks I had, I gave away. Right. <laughs> like, handing them out. They were, I was like, mm -mm, y'all can have these. Yeah, I don't give go. one anymore. <laughs> you know, I already had a low level of fucks, but they really went out the window. 
<laughs> they was really gone after Listen, that. So I hear um, that. Yeah, I heard that. She took. I think Miss Holiday took a couple with her too when she left. Because <laughs> I was like, some of them fucks ain't come back at all. I was like, okay, because <laughs> I was really out there on her. But now I'm like, oop, yep. She took some with her. She was like, you don't need these. You don't need these fucks either. <laughs> I, I guess speaking of not having any, I mean, one of the most you know dramatic scenes is when you're arrested naked. Yeah. What was that scene like? I think they edited out the part as well, too, where she actually squats down and pees on the rug in that scene as well, too, because not not just because it was in that scene, because it happened. (laughs) She literally to command her power back is naked and squats and just lets it loose. Like, all right. Yes. So you you actually you actually did that. We did it. We actually filmed it. Yeah, we did. Oh, wow. Why, well, why did they cut it, though? I mean, they were probably like, you know, it was I mean, it was like every scene had to pick and choose. Like, all right, we need like, you know, it was sort of what gets to the point, what talks about the point, what da, 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 you know what I mean? I think in each scene and, you know, I mean, maybe it was too crazy. Who knows? I don't know how it actually read on camera because I never really watched the playbacks and stuff, you know, so it might have been a little too much. But but that's a real thing that happened. And that was I mean, that was her. You know what I mean? There was actually another scene that was cut from it, which is a true story of Billie Holiday. (laughs) She was in a club one night with her bandmates and a guy walks up and puts a cigarette out in her coat. And, you know, the band gets up in arms and her friend, actually, I think like Carmen McRae was there this one night because I think she was telling the story and band gets up in arms. Like, oh, she, she, she was hella cool. Just, oh, it's all right. He's just drunk. Let him be, you know, don't trip. And then he stops. He said, no, I'm not drunk. I just didn't know they serve nigga bitches in here. You know what I'm saying? You know, they love to cross my nigga bitch. So <laughs> I was like, and she very kind of, you know, casually gets up and tells the man to meet her outside. And so instead of like just meeting, he goes to meet her outside, but he brings a friend with him as if they're going to jump her and beat her up because that's what cowards do. So Carmen McRae tells a story about running out to go help her. And she said, by the time she got there, she looked and she had fucked both of them up. <laughs> I was like, she was really. She was about that she life. Was, right, she gang, was gang, 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 gang. <laughs> <laughs> And I admired that. You know what I'm saying? I admire that. It's like, I think that people would be like, oh, oh, handle it better. But I'm like, honestly, she gave him a chance to be like, be cool. And then she she did what she, she had to do. So there was a lot. Of they actually chose the violence. 100%. They chose it. They chose it. <laughs> they didn't they know what they it. was really choosing, but Correct. <laughs> so I, I think but she, they chose she was a lot like that. You know what I'm saying? All the time. Yeah. So with you going through this process of, of immersing yourself so deeply in a character, I'm sure with you being the second black woman ever to win a a Golden Globe and all the success and accolades that came with it. (laughs) How does this impact or how has it impacted how you're looking at perhaps your next project? I should ask, do you consider yourself an actor now? (laughs) I mean, you know, what? yes, only because everybody tells me to stop saying that I'm not an actor and consider myself an actor. So I'm like, fine, to qualify y'all, I'm going to just say I'm an actor. But a little bit like if I got the right formula, you know, because I give so much credit to Tasha Smith, you know what I'm saying? She's just a genius to Lee Daniels, to Tom Jones. So, you know, Time will tell. You know what I'm saying? And I know that sounds like I'm setting myself up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not all this life. It's not that I'm not confident, but, you know, it. like any artist, I want to do a good job. I want everything to be great. So I hope, you know what I mean? But I'm going to just, you know, pray about it. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I consider myself that and I'm going to put in the work. And there are stuff like Lee and I are, are working on another project together right now. You know what I mean? And there's... Um, a, a, like a, a TV show that I'm really um, excited about as well. And um, so there's been like some stuff that's come in from some really great and prolific directors. And so it's just about doing the same thing I did with Billy. You know what I mean? I'm just, it's interesting because I almost feel like there's more pressure now because before it was like, I figured I'd be terrible <laughs> and it would just end up terrible and it would go away and no one would care. Um, so now I feel like there's this expectation of like, oh, she's a good actress, you know, and that kind of like, I feel like there's that. There is. If I'm being honest, there feels like there's a little bit of pressure like that there. But, you know, I'm going to just pray about it. Try to stay faithful, be intentional and put the work in the timing. 
Hopefully it goes good, you know. Well, I, I hope they, you know, don't try to typecast you by only throwing historical roles at you, like only like historical singers. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a hundred percent. And there's already been. But then there has been some things that have come in that are not that, you know, like there's this one project. It's like this futuristic kind of alien type of thing, which seems really dope to me. Um, but I also am a little bit like, you know, if somebody wants to tell a fire story, you know, fire, I don't know. <laughs> Angela Davis or Erica Kid story, like I'm down. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I don't mind. You know, I to me, I'm like I know, and I've heard that too. People, I hope they don't typecast you. And I do care about that, but I also care like where the spirit leads. Like if I'm supposed to play this person, then I'm good. You know what I mean? If I'm not, then I'm not. Or the one everybody keeps saying, which is Eartha Kid, right? Yeah, I keep hearing Eartha Kid. Yeah, Eartha Kid, and the other one is Angela Davis because I did that video thing. You know what I mean? And I would love to, you know what I mean? But again, I, I don't want to do it just because people think I, if I'm the best person for it and everything meshes right with the spirit and with the role and with what we do, then I want to do it. You know what I'm saying? Because there's a lot of actresses who I think would kill Eartha Kitt and who would kill Angela Davis. So. <laughs> I hear you. All right, uh, Andrew, before I get you out of here, there's a game that I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. You got to make one. All right. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm greedy. I'm real greedy. <laughs> you know, it's just what it is. All right. Pasta or your mom's yellow cake peach cobbler? Ooh, yellow cake peach cobbler all day. Ooh, you did your recent Janelle. <laughs> yeah, man. First of all, when I when I saw yellow cake peach cobbler, I was like, they could do that? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't. Mom just be in the kitchen like yum, yum, yum and puts it all together. And I'm like, God bless this woman. Like yellow cake. Peach. You know what? I'm going to make. Well, I'm not going to make it for you. I'm going to ask my mama to make it for you one day. I'm so serious about that. Y'all hear me. I live in Los <laughs> Angeles, dog. It ain't nothing. Let's, oh, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. Wait. Wait, are you, let me know, vegan, anything like nah, that? Mm -mm, mm -mm. Okay. I'm, 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 what I am is greedy. That's what I am. Right. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait a minute. Why have we not kicked it before? I'm saying, now? I'm saying, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, okay. okay. She got yellow cake peach cobbler coming yes. her way. <laughs> so uh, maybe a, a lot of people don't know this, but it was Stevie Wonder's ex-wife who showed him a tape of you singing in the mall. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got on his radar and thus your singing career uh, kicked off. So in the spirit of Stevie, Sir Duke or as? Ooh. Oh, my God. Dang, that's so hard. I was like trying to ask me about Billie Holiday. OK, I'm going to go with Sir Duke. <laughs> OK, I'm going to go with Sir Duke. We got to move. Otherwise, I'm going to change yeah, my mind. Let's move on. <laughs> yes. Before you change your mind. And finally, and this is not easier either. Roberta Flax killing me softly or Lauren Hills killing me softly. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. OK. First of all, listen, I'm going to say this almost feels like sacrilege, but not sacrilege. There's no bad answer in this question. Actually, that's how I'm going to say. It. So I'm going to go with. Lauren Hills, because listening to that as a young person is what introduced me to Roberta Flack. You know what I'm saying? So I have that was the through line for me. And I that sounds like sacrilege to say. So I love Roberta. I love Lauren. But it was hearing her version first that toured me into Roberta Flack. So I'll say Lauren. <laughs> and, and speaking of music, uh, might we be getting any? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we are. I, I'm so excited. Actually, the the next single that we're dropping is featuring Wale, who is just like, oh my gosh, he's just one of my favorite artists, period. And then has like quickly become one of my favorite people to just work with because he's we already know how immensely talented and consistent and how many just like hits and just he's all over the spectrum of great music. So I was just really blessed that he even wanted to be a part of this song and this project. And he's been really passionate about it. And like, so I'm so excited to like drop the song, you know what I'm saying? In the world. So music is coming. We're finishing some things right now. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to some things, just putting finishing touches on it, but it's definitely coming for sure. Please be checking out for the feature with Wale on it. Cause my brothers also go get his album. Excuse me. Color and two is out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, his album's dope. And it's so it's a listen through. You know what I mean? The whole thing is a listen through. So yeah. Yeah, no skips as the as the kids say. Yeah, exactly. There you go. No, no skips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is crazy because um, you're an incredible singer. You know, Rise Up became um, an anthem, oh, you, you know, it, much in the vein of like 
you know, fight the power with public enemy. It's like right it's in that same class. Wow. But it what's the quote crazy is that people these days are are going to associate you with Billie Holiday. Oh, it's, it's wild. It's, it's wild. so wild yeah. to me how quick the shift happened. You know what I'm saying? Which, and honestly, I'm grateful for it too. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm grateful for like super grateful for Rise Up. You know what I mean? And 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 for what it did and what it continues to do. You know. But I'm just like any artist. I, I know I haven't dropped a record since then. You know. But like any artist, like you don't want to just be known for one song. You don't want it. So I love that now people are like, oh my god, Billie. That makes me so happy. You know, because like. I don't think I'm one of those people that's probably going to do a lot of work. You know what I mean? But I feel like as far as that goes, but I do want whatever it is I do do or be a part of, I want it to be great. Even if it doesn't reach a ton of people, but it, like great in, in the intention and the purpose that it serves and how it moves in the world. You know what I mean? So don't have to be a lot, but it has to be intentional. It has to be great. So it's cool. It makes me think like, great, Rise Up really impacted people. I love that it was adopted by the Black Lives Matter movement. That's everything to me. And then Billie Holiday on the heels of that and how she has affected, especially Black women. Like, oh my God. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's my heart. That's, you know, my life, obviously. Yeah, that's why it was so awesome to see you and Regina King together after, immediately after you won. And I couldn't even believe, I was like, how, who in the hell's executive decision was it to put Regina King at the same hotel as me? Why is she not up at a Ritzy <laughs> or Ritz or something like that? Like, I was like, but don't do not, but she is so fire. Oh my gosh. And I, she actually sent me the sweetest message, like before the Oscars as well too, just to check on and be like, how's your spirit? You know what I mean? You staying encouraged, just making sure I'm like, she's so real. And she is just like, I don't know. I, I was already just such a huge fan of hers. Like it would be a dream, right. To work with her, but how supportive she was during the process was like, damn, you don't have to, she got her own shit going on and she's like thriving and just like, you know, knocking down barriers, breaking glass ceilings, all this stuff too. And then to take the time out to be like, hey, whoop, whoop, whoop. You know what I mean? Just checking on you is like, she's definitely a special bird. And so I'm a fan, but also like, dang. You know, I just like love this woman so much. Well, you deserved it. And uh, Andrea, I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. I'm gonna hold you to that peach cobbler cake, dog. I'm telling you. Oh, I'm already on it. They already heard me, so we on it. It's happening right now. Literally, I'm making arrangements when we get off, but I'm so happy to finally talk to you, and I'm happy to see that you're just thriving and you're doing great. You know what I'm saying? And if you give me the green light, I'll watch football again. Only if you give me the green light. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. I have the professional excuse working for me right now, but there you go. um, Yeah, so it's all good. We'll 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 get we'll get you back there. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, we'll wrap over peach. We will wrap over peach cobbler. Um, Pleasure, Andrea. Thank you for the time. Um, She is getting out of here, ladies and gentlemen. You know what's coming up next? Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. This podcast is dropping a couple days before Thanksgiving, but you wouldn't know that because all of you Christmas stands have disrespectfully, immorally, deceitfully decided that Thanksgiving is no longer deserving of its own time. As soon as Halloween hit, Christmas have hit the gas and fuck it, I'm bothered. I blame Mariah Carey for making people feel like it was acceptable to just bypass Thanksgiving. The ink wasn't even dry on Halloween. And here comes Mariah putting out a video on social media, smashing pumpkins and letting people know it's her time now. Because every Christmas, her classic song, All I Want for Christmas, soars on the charts. And while it is one of my favorite Christmas songs of all time, I'm wounded that one of my faves would just body Thanksgiving like that. And naturally, the rest of you heathens have joined right along, including the retailers. This time of year, you could go into a CVS and see some Thanksgiving-themed decorations. Not anymore. I went into CVS, and the Christmas shit is practically spilling out of the aisle. All the lights, all the tinsel, all the ornaments, all the Christmas stockings. It's folks in my neighborhood who already have their Christmas decorations up. And I bet you those same people ain't going to take that shit down until sometime in late January. The shame. Now, I admit I'm biased. 
Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday because uh, who doesn't like a holiday built completely around food and not just any food, the best food, succulent turkey, dressing. Notice I didn't say stuffing, greens, mac and cheese, cranberry sauce, the canned version, because ain't nobody trying to get them real cranberries. We need the fake shit. And of course, the Don Dada, the sweet potato pie. I also love Thanksgiving because it's about doing things together, watching football, the Thanksgiving parade, having family over. People aren't consumed with buying the right gift or having anxiety because they forgot to get somebody a gift. Now, I wasn't always team Thanksgiving because like most kids and young adults, it was all about Christmas because of the gifts. But as an adult, I value different things, namely my stomach. So I demand justice for Thanksgiving. Next year, when Halloween is over, don't y'all dare start humming Donnie Hathaway's This Christmas, buying wrapping paper and Santa hats before Thanksgiving has had its time. Y'all got pretty much all of December to celebrate Christmas. Got parents around here having to witness a jolly fat ass white man get all the credit for giving their kids gifts. The nerve. Damn that. All holidays matter. Stay unbothered. Break you off with the fodder Fuck it, I'm bothered Hit you with the spice that I offer Fuck it, I'm bothered My word, how I live it You don't wanna miss it I was born to get it Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Peepboat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill, and please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. <laughs> this sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week, it's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that, get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.